All right, be honest with me. How many of you think of Nightmare Before Christmas when you see that right there? <laughs> Thank you. Every time I see it, I was like, oh, Nightmare Before Christmas. I expect Jack Skellington to be swinging from that tree or something. Hey, my name is Danny. I'm the Tierra Santa Campus Director. I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. And the program you got as you walked in the door this morning, there's an outline. You can go ahead and pull that out. It's kind of a roadmap where we're going to be going this morning. And uh, first of all, I want to say congratulations to all the graduates. That's awesome. Good job. It's huge accomplishment in your life. But I would say this, that's not the last step. Continue to strive and continue to move forward because God has so much more in store for you. And man, what a great accomplishment for you. For me, when I think of school, I think of growing up and... Um, to say I was a little bit stressful on my mom is probably an understatement. I was a C-minus student at best. I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. And man, when it was over, I was like, Whew. And I think one of the things that I always looked forward to every year as school was about to get out is using the words of the famous poet Alice Cooper, school's out for summer. Like, Every year, that was like my deal. I knew summer was coming, and I was like, oh, thank you so much. I just made all the teachers in the room cringe a little bit, didn't I? Because you know that reality. Well, I'm not going to let up. I'm going to make you cringe a little bit more because I want to look at some test answers right now that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're more practical than they are right. The first one would be this one. What ended in 1896? 1895, naturally, right? That's the right answer. Practical, not necessarily what the teacher was looking for. Or where was the Declaration of Independence sign? At the bottom, <laughs> right? Little math test for us. Bob has 36 candy bars. He eats 29. What does he have now? Diabetes. <laughs> Bob has diabetes. All right. I was contemplating on not putting this one in here, this next one, but I, it's so good. I couldn't do it. I just asked for forgiveness in advance. It's this. Why are there rings on Saturn? Because God liked it, so he put a ring on it. <laughs> Look at the teacher's answer, though. Look at the teacher's answer. Saturn was not a single lady. <laughs> in the words of Beyonce, right? You didn't think you were going to hear from Alice Cooper and Beyonce in the first five minutes of a sermon this morning, did you? <laughs> hey, here's the, re <laughs> here's the reality for all of us. In life, we're going to face all kinds of different tests. We're going to face tests that give us positive answers that maybe we were looking for. But then on the flip side, some of those tests are not going to give us the answers we are looking for because they're negative. They come with a diagnosis. They come with a whole new reality that we're going to have to live in. I think for me, one of the hardest tests physically and mentally and spiritually that I've recently gone through was about three years ago. I was having this pain in my shin, like right in here. And I'd had it for a couple weeks, and I thought as like a, a guy, I was like, well, I'll just walk it out. It'll just go away. I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm fine. Well, it didn't, and it kept getting worse, and it kept getting worse, and it kept getting worse. And finally, I broke, and I said, okay, I'm going to go to the doctor. And so I go to the doctor, and I start telling him what's going on. I said, yeah, you know, I've got this pain in my shin. It's not necessarily going away. In fact, it's getting worse. And I said, a couple other weird things are kind of going on. I said, I'm losing weight, and, like, I'm not, like, the person that should be losing weight. I wasn't the vision of health you currently see right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. And the doctor said, what else is going on? I said, you know, I'm incredibly thirsty. I'm very tired. I'm very irritable. 
and he stops and he goes, has anybody in your family had cancer before? And I was like, and he goes, what about bone cancer? And I said, yeah, somebody did have bone cancer. I said, my birth father. I said, I didn't know him. I don't know anything about him, but I heard he died of that. And so the doctor leaves the room and he goes out and it's like five minutes. It seemed like 500 hours in that waiting room and it was tough. And he comes back and the temperature in the room, the tension in the room completely changed. And he looked at me and he said, Danny, I need you to go to Sharp immediately. I need you to go get x-rays. I need you to go get blood tests because I think these might be the symptoms of bone cancer. In that moment, like, every ounce of me just fell out on the floor. Like, the wind was sucked out of my lungs. Like, my heart stopped, and I was frozen in that moment. I said, no, 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 no. That's what I told I remember clapping my hands like this. I don't know why I do that. I said, no, 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 no. This is not true. I said, I'm 40 years old. I have a newborn. This can't be my reality. And he goes, I understand that, but we need to rule this out. So I get in the car, I leave the doctor's office, I get in the car, I didn't call my wife, I didn't call my mom, I didn't have anything on, it was just quiet. And it was like the longest drive I've ever made down Linda Vista Road, down to Sharp over here in Linda Vista. And I remember I get in there and I start doing all these tests, they're taking x-rays, they're taking blood, and it's just this thing in my head that's all cloudy, it doesn't seem real, but I'm in this reality, but I don't feel like I'm in this reality. And then I go home and I open the door and my kids are happy to see me. They come running, daddy, daddy. And then, like, my wife is super happy to see me. And all of a sudden, she looks at me and she goes, oh, hold up. What's going on? And I said, you need to sit down. And we went to the bedroom. We didn't want the ki- I didn't want to tell the boys. And I sat her down and I said, hey, um, the doctor's appointment today is not necessarily what we want. And she goes, well, what do you mean? I said, they tested me for bone cancer. And she fell apart. I fell apart. It was like the ugly cry, just like we were just a mess in there. And so for the next 24 hours, we sat in that reality of not knowing, of not really understanding what God was doing. And then we get the phone call the next day at 4 o'clock. And why did doctors wait till 4 o'clock to give us news? It's like the worst. Like they know we're at home like biting, like uh, clenching our teeth. And he says, Danny, I have good news. I said, what's that? And he says, you don't have bone cancer. I said, cool. And he goes, but you're not in the clear. I said, well, what kind of cancer is it? He says, it's not cancer. I said, well, well, what is it then? He says, you have type 2 diabetes. And I remember in that moment being so confused. I was kind of like lost. You know, I was kind of lost in that moment because it was a reality. I knew my whole life was going to change at that point. I know everything in my life was about to change, but I didn't understand how it was going to change. I didn't get it. I knew that, like, I didn't know if I was going to have to take, like, shots, and I don't like shots, and then I was like, I'm going to have to put them in my, my belly. I was like, I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to do that, I'm going to have to change my diet, I'm going to have to have, and I was like, <sighs> and it just kept getting heavier and heavier, and I sat in that reality. I just sat in that reality. But then something started to happen. I started to realize, and, and my wife was with me, and, and we just sat there, and I, I said, I said, you know what? I said, the only way we're ever going to make it through this, the only way it's ever possible 
to get through this trial or this test or whatever God has us in is I have to stay close. And I'd say for you, it's the same thing. Staying close to God in times of testing really opens the door. It opens the door to the miraculous for us, allows the miracle to happen, whatever it is, God's will to be played out in our life, the miraculous to happen, and others get to see the miracle as well. But we have to be willing to really lean into God. See, it's in these times of like almost confusion or times of testing where it doesn't make sense that we're absolutely dependent on leaning into God so that we can hear his voice. And I'll say this, it gives us the ability to really start preparing and getting ready for the test because we're leaning into him, we're listening to him. We're beginning to understand that, okay, God, I don't like any of this, but I know you've got something in store. What it does is when we stay close in these times, when we're leaning into him in these times of testing, it gives us the ability to study with the test in mind. We're there with a person that's going to take us through this test. And the good thing about God's test, the beautiful thing about all of God's test is it's an open book test. But we have to be willing to open the book and actually listen. That's the tough part. This week, we're continuing on in this series, Elijah, that we kicked off last week. And Pastor Mike last week kicked this off and gave us like the historical context, the cultural context of exactly where we're at. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. You can turn them to 1 Kings chapter 17. And I would encourage you, if you did not listen to Pastor Mike's message last weekend, go and listen. Because it really begins to set up this historical, cultural context that gives us the why behind this series. And it's great. So I would encourage you to go home and listen to that. But last week, I'll give you the kind of the cliff notes of it. Last week, we learned about Elijah and how God was really gave him the opportunity to learn to depend on God. That was what last week was all about. God sent Elijah to this creek and he was fed by the ravens and he was to drink from this creek. But now... The drought that Elijah had been talking about actually happened, and that, drink, that, that creek that he was drinking from dried up. And God was about to test Elijah to see if he actually did learn, if he actually truly learned how to depend on God last week. See, what, Eli- what he's doing, what God is doing, is he's going to, to give him this test to, to really see if he learned how to depend on God. And in this second part of the story, what we're going to see is we see that Elijah and this other person in this story truly learn what it means to depend on God and take those next steps of faith. So if you have your Bibles open, you can turn them to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll pick up here in verse 7, and it says this. Sometime later, the the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The word of the Lord came to him. Now, this is God speaking to Elijah here. He says, says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, 
Will you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece, a piece of bread. Right off the bat, we see Elijah's really needy and like bossy right now. I'm just kidding. He's not that at all. <laughs> what I see in the story off the bat is right here. Test can be absolutely hard. I think we'll all agree with that, right? The testing that we've gone through, those trials that we've gone through, absolutely they can be hard. But God always goes before us. Look at here again in verse 9. What does it say? God tells Elijah, he says, go at once to Zarephath. But what does he do? He lives this out. He says, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. God is reminding him, hey, listen, I am testing you, but I will go before you. It's like this idea of providing for us. Now understand what Elijah was about to do. Elijah was about to go on a hundred-mile journey from where he was. In fact, he was on this hundred-mile journey going west to, to Zarephath, this region of Sidon, on the Mediterranean coast. Now, Zarephath, Elijah hearing, you want me to go where? It automatically triggers. He knows what's going to go on in Zarephath. Zarephath is like... It's like the, 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 the central point, the, the worship, the main worshiping point of the God that we learned about last week, Baal. That's where it's at. You know who else is from this area? Jezebel. And he's probably like, God, you want me to do what? And I think all of us have one place in our life, or maybe a couple, where we just hear the name and we're like, oh, no, I can't go back there. For me, it's Dutch Harbor, Alaska. That's a horrible place. Let me tell you something. Good night. 18 years old on a Coast Guard boat. We pull in there like every other week. It's terrible. There's nothing to do. And it, like a large pizza at Pizza Hut costs like 30 bucks. It's terrible. Here's what I see in this story that's so powerful. See, a lot of people would have thought that this region of Sidon, that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was not there, that he was not present, that there is no way that he was here. But there was a drought 100 miles away, and guess where there's a drought now? In Sidon, in, Jer in, Jerobeth, in uh, Zarebeth, and it's this, it's this famine that's hit the land. And what I see is like, sometimes we think God doesn't show up in certain areas, but God is everywhere. He's the creator there are no man-made boundaries, there's no territories, there's no state, there's no nothing that he's in. He will bring a drought or a famine to anywhere he pleases. But on the flip side of that, God can also use a widow who has no knowledge of who he is to feed a prophet, a messenger of him, and be directed by him even though she has no clue on what's going on. And in our stories, in our testing... God does the exact same thing. We don't understand how. We don't understand why. But when we lean into him and we begin to, to really listen to who he is, we'll realize that he's there with us. I love how Psalm 23 says it. It says it like this. Even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. That's such a powerful powerful verse to remember when we're going through those trials and we feel all alone in those darkest valleys that every single one of us has faced one time or another in our life or maybe you're in that dark valley this morning and you're like man I'm grateful I'm here here's what I want you to hear 
God tests us. God tests whether I trust him. Even, even when his directions seem confusing, even when they seem like, God, okay, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense, God. Why, why am I here? How, am I, how did I get here, God? What are you going to do? Those are the questions we constantly ask. Like, how did I get here? Why am I here? How am I going to get out of here? But here's what I would say to that. Even when we don't know how, we don't know why, he will work it out. There's always a path. There's always a path. There's always a path of deliverance. There's always a path of, of rescue. But we have to be leaned into him. We have to be listening to him. When we're far from him, he can't talk to us. We can't hear him. We get lost in the what and the how and the whys. It's no matter what. Even though I don't understand it, God, I know you're at work. I remember getting off the phone and sitting in that reality of diabetes type 2 and asking all those questions like, I don't know what I'm going to do, and confused and lost in it. And I remember I went outside and I went to the back of my property and I was just sitting there and I just sat and I, I didn't know what to say. I was just kind of lost in it. And it had been about four or five hours since I got that phone call. So it was like seven or eight o'clock. And I remember in the midst of it, I was overwhelmed, yes, by the bigness and the new reality of, of my life, but I began to feel the memories of who God was and how he'd shown up in my life. And I began to feel this faith. I didn't understand it. Get, don't get me wrong, because I sure in the heck didn't like my new reality at all. But I began to feel something rise up inside of me. And it was this faith. And I said, okay, God. I don't like this. Take it away. But I knew something was about to happen in my life. Now, I got to admit something. We flat out gave up that night. Like just said, nope, not going to do it. Don't want this to be reality. We loaded up in the car, headed up to Cold Stone and ate all the ice cream we could possibly eat. <laughs> like seriously, I gave up. I was done. I was cooked. If you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, don't go do that. Like, <laughs> I did it for you. <laughs> but think about this story. Think about it. Why would God send Elijah to Zarephath? Why? And why would he choose to use this widow? Because I'm absolutely 100% sure there were plenty of widows in Israel. But look at this passage here in Luke. It says this. I assure you. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking of this story, and he says this, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's times when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. You want to see where God's at work? Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. You know what I see here? Intentionality. God was intentional. God is, is not... Um, coincidental by any stretch of the imagination. No, God is absolutely intentional. 
Am I saying that God causes all diseases and it's punishment for who? No, I'm not saying that. We live in a broken world and sin continues to manifest itself and become more destructive and more destructive and it is a result of a broken world we live in. But what I am saying is there is intentional work in these seasons and these tests and these trials for us. And when we lean into God and we stay connected to him and trust him through these trials, it gives us the ability to get through them. Not on our own, not on our own might, not on our own strength, because we can't do that. It'll crush us. But when we're connected to him, we're listening to him, it gives us the ability to get through it. And here's the truth. When we pass the test, when we get through it, God can use it, right? When I pass the test, I can encourage others with the lessons I've learned. Sometimes the biggest thing we can learn in a test or a trial is it's not all about me. But I love me. I do. I I, I love me some me. But God so many times has showed me that the things that I've gone through in my life, they're not just for me. They're for others to see God's glory, to see God's to see God at work in our life, to see the miraculous. It's so amazing. It's why I love our support ministries around here. Celebrate recovery, divorce care, grief share. They say three things in those ministries about recovery. They say it's about, they say it's about experience, strength, and hope. Experience, people sharing their story, people sharing about where God took them so that people can find an identity. People don't have to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm the only one that does this. I'm the only one that has this addiction. I'm the only one that feels this pain from my divorce or from my loss. And the experience in the God stories helps people feel like they can have an identity, that they're not alone. And they find strength. They find community. And then they see hope. They see the stories, they hear the stories, and see once I was here, and now I am here. I have not left my house in six months because my son passed away, and I just can't get out from underneath the grief. Our stories are not always about us. Our trials are not only about us. It's about the experience, so people can find strength and hope. I remember last year, I got a phone call from a really good friend of mine. His name's Wayne. And Wayne lives in Nashville. And the only thing Wayne calls me to do is mess with me. That's it. But this time when Wayne called, it was different. Wayne had a different tone. And I know when Wayne's serious because he's never serious. Like, I know when something's up. And he goes, Danny? He goes, I have to ask you something. I said, what's going on, buddy? And he goes, can Stephanie call you and talk to you? I said, well, what'd you screw up, dude? <laughs> he said, no, it's not that. He says, he says, Stephanie just got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I am extremely close with them. I was in their wedding. I love these two people. And so Stephanie, I said, absolutely, have her call me. So Stephanie calls. I pick up the phone, and she, I remember, I remember the feelings, right, like of me being in the same situation just not too long ago, the overwhelmness, the scared, like what am I going to do, and I, 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 for an hour, I talked her off the ledge, and I began to tell her, we can do this, you're not going to walk through this alone, I'll help you, 
I'll help you figure out the vitamins you got to take to counteract what the pills do to you. I'll help you design a diet, and we'll work through a, a fitness program, and we'll, we'll go through this together. You don't walk through this alone. And so we did for three months. And she started, and she was diagnosed with diabetes with her blood sugar at like an 8.2. You want to be at a 5 to a 5.5. She was an 8.2. Myself, I was a 9.2. But in both situations, the term that they use is slow suicide. We're literally killing ourselves. So she goes through this new diet, and I told her everything. I said, watch, it's going to work. It's going to work, Stephanie. And I know it sucks, and I know not eating any bread and sugar and donuts and that, that's hard. I love them. She calls me three months later and she goes, Danny, I got my first, they're called an A1C. It's your percentage. It's your blood. She goes, I'm testing non-diabetic. 5.6, Danny. I had the same experience. I was diagnosed with a blood sugar of 383. Your normal blood sugar should be 90 to 120. I had a, a like I said, I had a A1C of 9.2. That is slow suicide. If I kept going that way, I would die. I took it seriously, and three months later, I tested a 5.6 and kept my blood sugar at 90 120 and have never gone back. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. But that's not about me. God is using that. And I've had countless conversations with people, countless conversations with people about you can do this. Don't lose hope. And in this story, we see Elijah do this. Look at this next part of this passage. Elijah does this. It's so beautiful how I think Elijah begins to realize, I get it. I understand why I'm here. I understand, God, what you're doing here. And he says this. And he picks up here, let's pick up here in verse 12. And this is what happens. This is the widow responding to Elijah saying, hey, go get me some bread and water. She says this, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's her reality. The famine is struck so hard. The drought is so hard that she's like, we're never going to make it. There's no hope. I'm just going to make this meal. I don't know why you, this joker showed up and is telling me to go get him bread and water. I'm going to go take care of my son. But the words that Elijah says right here are so powerful. Elijah says this in response. Look at verse 13. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Maybe you're here today and those are the three words you needed to hear and you'll take nothing else with you. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. I lost my place. <laughs> don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and for your son. And now he's going to speak truth. He's going he's gonna to speak right into it. He says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. He said, don't be afraid. And what does she do in response? She went. She went. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her, and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. 
what I see here is she's beginning to truly have faith. Now, she doesn't know what's going on. She has no relationship with whoever this Yahweh God is, but she's starting to trust Elijah. Maybe it's because she's going for broke because she's got nothing else. She's like, whatever, I'll try anything at this point, but whatever it is, she's beginning to have faith. She's beginning to trust who Elijah is. She's not getting lost in this sense of, nah, forget you. I just am going to go die. You're going to die too. I don't know what you're so happy about. I'm going to go die. No. Elijah says, don't be afraid. And what did she do? She went. When we're in situations of testing and trials, and it can just overwhelm us because I know I've been in them, I understand it, fear is going to seep in. And do you know what fear is? Fear is a liar. Fear will prevent us from taking the next step. Fear will paralyze us in the situation that we find ourselves in, and we cannot move. Remember, Elijah told her, he said, don't be afraid. What did she do? She went. Because fear, you and I, fear might consume us, but it need not constrain us. For some of you, though, that's an easier thing said than a reality to live in. Because you find yourself in the crossroads. You find yourself in the crossroads of doubt and fear and faith. You know doubt and fear, fear really well. In fact, you're thinking, I don't want to take this step of faith. Because you know what, God? I remember last time you didn't show up. But were you leaning into God? Were you listening to him? And that next step of faith seems impossible. That next step of faith seems like, I, I don't, God, you know what? I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't believe that it can happen because, God, you know what? I didn't pass that test, and I have to go back next year, and I have to take that class all over again, and I have to go do that test again. And, God, I don't know if I'm ever going to complete school. In fact, I don't care anymore. Or maybe those elusive cheap fingers didn't show up again. You got passed over one more time. That three up, three down, Marine, didn't happen. And you've been trying so hard. You've been giving it everything you've got. I've had so many conversations with guys that are like, am I going to retire in E6? Is this it? Is this the end of my career? I'm not going to advance into senior leadership? Is this, is this who I am? You know what? Forget it. I'm just going to be okay with it. I'm just going to cruise and just be okay with it. Or maybe you would got the same phone call I got. You got a diagnosis that you realized, this is going to change my life. This may even end my life. But what I see in this story is I see a woman that's in the same situation. And Elijah being sent from God to this place, Zarephath, is kind of in the same situation as well. But the beautiful thing is, is they begin to put faith in God. And for us, when we're willing to put our full faith in it, God provides. This is the truth here. God provides for anyone willing to put faith in him. Like I said, this woman has no relationship with God. She knows who Elijah is. She's starting to learn about this, but she still necessarily doesn't understand who God is. But the truth starts to happen. This reality starts to happen because what did she do? She went she responded, and there was food every 
day. What a beautiful thing to like step into. I couldn't even imagine. She's like, okay, I don't know who this Yahweh is, but the dude's providing and I'm going to step into it. The reality for us in tests and when we get lost in fear, we don't know why or how. But for me, I think even though I didn't understand it in my case, I didn't get it. I knew God had something in store. I've heard faith described like this. Faith is the step between promise and assurance. And we have to take that step forward. And in the midst of those tests, we have the reality that, oh my gosh, I missed it. God, I missed you. God, God often uses those life's hardships to point us back to him. I had a conversation with a woman in between this last service. Her and her husband um, just flew back from Okinawa, and she's at Balboa getting treatment for stage 3 cancer. She goes, I can see God at work. I don't understand how. I don't understand why. I don't want to be here. We denied orders in Hawaii to come back here. She says, I don't know what I'm going to do. She goes, but I do know that God put us here for a reason at this church today. And she goes, I'm just going to continue to follow that. I love how it says it in the book of James. Consider it pure joy. Ooh, those are hard words to listen to right there. I don't like Anybody ever find joy in anything that's being taken away or a test or a trial? It's hard. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trial of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete and not lacking anything. I still haven't found joy in the testing. I still haven't found joy or heard anybody find joy when they've lost a job or a marriage is broken or they can't have that relationship with their child because they're running. I, I haven't talked to a lot of people. But I'll tell you this. The people that I do talk to, they've been long and faithful in their faith. They've trusted God in the dark valleys. They've trusted God in the mountaintops. They've trusted God in the valleys. And they know who God is. And the beautiful thing about being in a church like this or any church is we can begin to find strength in their stories. I'll tell you this. I'll challenge you if that's the season of life you're in. You're that sage. We need you. We can't have you check out. Because we're not going to be able to make it through the things that we're going through without you, without your knowledge, without your hope, without you telling us, no, God will provide, God will be there. The second miracle in this story really begins to show exactly what I'm talking about, this idea of it's the experience of others that gets us through. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that's, oh, this is the easy train. No, it's not, but it gives us that strength. The story continues on, and we'll finish out the chapter. It says this. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. The widow says this. She says to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? 
Elijah says this. He says, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then Elijah cries out here. He says this. He says, Lord God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with because her, causing her son to die? Even Elijah's starting to think, gosh, what's going on? I don't get this. And Elijah responds. He doesn't get trapped in the fear. He he begins to respond in faith because he remembers that God is faithful. And it says this in verse 21, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times. He stretches his arm out three times over this boy and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And what happens? The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Where's all the moms in the room? That's a powerful moment. You didn't think you had a son anymore. You didn't think you had a relationship, a job. This is for all of us. You didn't think there was a chance to get through any of it. Some of you need a resurrection. Because everything in your life is dead. You need that resurrection. The only way that happens is when we lean into him and we trust him and we hear from him. The beautiful thing, this is like Elijah's mission statement, mission coming to an end. It says this, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is from your, the word, the Lord of the word from your mouth is the truth. It's like period at the end of the sentence. Congratulations, Eliza, you have completed your mission. This entire chapter, the miracle of Elijah being fed by the ravens and drinking from the creek, the, the God providing food for him and the widow, the water and the bread, and now this resurrection of a child, it's to show one thing, that God is God. He is powerful. He is sovereign. God is God. And God can perform miracles that we have no clue how he does. Because let's face it, sometimes when miracles happen or we hear about them, they feel like make-believe, right? We hear these stories about magic and like things happen. For me, I know, I can struggle. Maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm the one that has a little bit of struggle in this. But sometimes miracles feel so far away that we can't grab them. That they don't seem like they'll ever show up in our life. And something begins to take place. We start blaming. We start looking for blame because I don't want to take responsibility for it. This isn't mine. We begin to, to, to blame others because it's easy, right? It's easy to blame others, even God, for the tragedy we face in life. Look at what the widow says again in verse 18. What did you have against me, man of God? And then Elijah to God. He says, have you brought tragedy even on this widow? Here's the reality. Blame games easy to play, right? I play it all the time. Your fault, not mine. Your fault, not mine. God, why did you do this? How did I get here? What had happened? How many guys got little kids? The blame game is alive and active in every single one of our houses. And we'll say, that's absolutely annoying. Then why do we do it? If it's so annoying, why do we get lost in it? I love this quote from Dr. Henry Cloud. He says this. Hold on one second. He says this. 
We live in a culture of blame. People will blame anyone or anything for their misery sooner than take the responsibility to own it and to make it better. When we step out of the blame game and we realize that the miracle can happen, wherever we find ourselves, this is what we can hold true to. The greater the problem in our life, the greater the glory when God intervenes. The problem may seem so overwhelming. The problem may seem like there's no way out, but then God shows up. Think about it. That mom has been through a, a, she's been through the gamut with Elijah, right? Her son's dead. He's resurrected. And at the end, in verse 24, she says this, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Elijah's story was used to give this Phoenician woman who had no clue who God was, no idea anything about him, to give her faith, to make it through the drought, to make it through the famine, to believe that God is who he says he is. God will show up when he says he's going to show up. God will do what he says he will do. It doesn't matter about borders, territory, states, whatever it is, God is present. God is there. He's not a distant God. He's right there with us. If you're going through one of those tests, this is a verse that I cling tight to in those times of testing and trials and understanding God. I don't, I don't get this. In fact, I have it on a three-by-five card that I keep with me in seasons like that. And it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, These tests have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of, is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We'll go through the fire. We'll see all kinds of stuff around us seem like it's just falling apart and we don't understand why we're going through it. But when God shows up, when Jesus is there with us and we're not doing this all anymore, it's that praise, that honor, that glory that is revealed to us. It's so powerful. And it's hard. It's hard to see that in seasons of, of testing, in seasons of trials. It's almost impossible. It almost feels like, God, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm going to trust you. Because I know when you show up, oh, it's going to be good. But what about you? What is God trying to teach you in the testing or trial or season that you currently find yourself in? What is God trying to test you? Maybe, maybe it's for you. Stop asking why and start asking what. Don't get lost in the whys. That's easy. I can play the whys all day long. Why this? Why that? Why this? Oh, God, why would you? Instead... What do you want to do, God? What is it? Or maybe your testing is to realize that it's not all about you, that God wants to use you and your testing for a bigger reason. The beautiful thing in this entire story is the actions of Elijah and this widow. They could have been consumed by fear. They could have been overwhelmed by doubt and said, I'm not doing any of this. But their actions to me 
displayed something that's so powerful. Their actions displayed not fear, not doubt, but in response to God, yes, I will. I count on one thing The same God who never fails Will not fail me now You won't fail me words, yes, I will. In the midst of whatever test, whatever trial, whatever season you may find yourself in, sometimes we just need to sing and worship the fact that he is there in our presence with us, never leaving us alone. Yes, I will. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us as a church no matter what season you find yourself in, I want to pray for each one of those seasons. And what we do, let's stretch our arm out in agreement because I want to pray over every single one of us. God, those words, yes, I will, are so powerful, especially when I find ourselves in the midst of a season where nothing makes sense and we find ourselves all alone, God. I want to pray for anybody in the room today that that's where they find themselves, God, that you would give them the strength that you would give them the ability to lean into you, to listen to you, to trust you, and to say, yes, I will, to whatever you have them. And God, I thank you for the people in the room, the long faithful, 
that have gone through so many seasons in their life. God, don't, don't let them, don't let them check out. Hold on to them, God. Draw them back to us because we need those stories. We need hope. We need direction. And God, they have a mighty story and we need to hear it because there are people in this room today that are about to step into that test and they have no clue. God, we need you in the midst of any season we find ourselves in the, in the test, having gone through it or right before. God, be with us. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to trust you and to say those words, yes, I will. We pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen.